Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, July 19th, 2012. Mm -mm. Just a warning, this is not a light edition, but we're only dealing with a single topic. I'll explain here in a minute. tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There's no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and this is a program that will teach you to, well, slow down a little bit. Take out your Bible and see if what people are claiming God wants or God said is really what God wants and what God said. How do we know? Well, because God inspired the scriptures to be written, and he inspired his prophets, he's, he's inspired his apostles, and he gave them words and sentences and pronouns and adjectives and adverbs and well, I sound like uh, one of those schoolhouse rock things. I'm getting all excited about grammar here. But that's the idea here is, is that when you, we look at God's word in context and we pay close attention to what's revealed there, we can know what God has said, what he's revealed, what his will is, uh, what he wants, what he doesn't want, you know, things like that. So, um, well, okay, with all of that said, let me try to set up the program today. We're going to deal with a singular topic. If you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, then you know that the topic that we're going to be talking about is the the New York Times best-selling book called The Harbinger. Okay, now got to tell you, didn't really know too much about it. Okay, I, I had seen some questions, you know, some you know people talking about it on certain blogs, and I didn't really know much about it. I don't know Jonathan Kahn, who's the author of the of the book. And uh, but what happened is, is that I noticed on the Internet that there was quite a flap about the book and there were claims being made about the author of the book. And so what do you do in a situation like that? Well, you do your homework is what you do, because uh, step number one in discernment is do your homework. In other words, here, here's the idea. OK, if there's a controversy regarding a book, you don't get to weigh in unless you read the book <laughs> that's kind of like rule number one he's like you know because here's the deal remember when you were in junior high and high school and you had to turn in those book reports well the, the, um, your teacher would have 
given you a bad grade if she'd detected, based on your book report, that you hadn't actually read the book. And since The Harbinger is not available in Cliff Notes, I actually <laughs> had to buy the book. Now, when did I buy the book? Yesterday. I read it last night. It was quick read um but then again i read pretty fast but uh, you know so i read the book i understand what the book's about i can tell you uh what the nine harbingers are i could <laughs> i could tell you how the book ends you know now so here's the deal i i don't want to well uh, let me put it this way there's no way to ta ta uh, tackle this topic without the understanding that there's spoilers involved so um, if you were thinking, oh man, Roseboro, you, yeah, I wanted to read that book and you're spoiling it. Well, then turn off the radio or, you know, to stop this podcast and go read the book. And that way I don't spoil it for you because the reality is, is that I can't discuss the controversy that is this book without discussing the contents of the book and the kind of the major premise behind it. And, uh, and also kind of telling you how it ends. Okay. Does that make sense? So, uh, that's what we're going to do. Now, here's the deal. There are some pretty big heavyweights in the uh, discernment camp out there who've weighed in and they have differing opinions regarding this book. Now, um, I am not, for lack of a better way of putting it, is, is that I'm going to interact with the content of the book and what the author has said in interviews promoting the book. And so I'm going to offer my own opinion here. Now, whether or not that opinion agrees with this person or that person, that's not the point of this. I'm going to interact with the content of the book um, and what the author is saying. I have some concerns with the book. I have some disagreements with the, the hermeneutics used in the book. And so what I want to do is I want to lay the case out uh, using the content of the book, as well as what I want to do is I want to interject a biblical argument into this discussion. Because this book, by the occasion of its popularity, lends itself to a bigger discussion. Okay, And the bigger discussion is, you know, what's the role of America when it comes, you know, how are we to view America? Is America a Christian nation? Is it a covenant you know, nation? Things like that. Well, we're gonna we're gonna tackle that head on. And what I'm gonna do is I'm going to, all, you know, in my biblical case that I'm going to lay out here, I'm going to make the claim that the focus of the book is on the wrong covenant community. And I'm sorry for using the word community. I understand that that's a, that's a theologically charged word right now. Understand that there's a right understanding of community. Um, even though there's a bunch of people who are misusing it. For instance, I mean, just because Rick Warren has completely biffed it regarding the word purpose, and every time you hear that word, you just you have you know an involuntary gag reflex that kicks in. You go, you know, like that. Just because Rick Warren has misused the word purpose doesn't mean that there isn't a correct use of the word purpose, even in having a discussion regarding God. Does that make sense? So the idea here is is that I'm going to weigh in. And understand that means that you know, well, I weigh a lot, so <laughs> yeah, don't look at the number on the scale when I weigh in. But uh, I'm going to weigh in on this topic and you know, and put in my two cents now, so that you know, I've contacted the uh, the author, Jonathan Kahn. We had a conversation prior to me uh, going into the studio and recording this edition of Fighting for the Faith, and I have given him. Uh, I've extended to him the invitation for him to come on tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith and interact with my critique. Okay. Now, that being said, I know that there's a lot of charges out there that he's a Kabbalist and things like that. I see no credible evidence to that 
effect. Plus, he's told me straight up he's not into the Kabbalah. So, you know, I that's you know, so I'm not going to go with the conspiracy theories and stuff like that. We're just going to take a look at the content of what he said in the book straight up. We're going to interact with what he said. We're going to interact with his ideas. We're going to interact with the ideas that he said, not only in the book, but also in interviews promoting the book. And one of the interviews that we're going to be listening to and interacting with a lot of the content from is his interview on Sid Roth's It's Supernatural. Now, if you've listened to Fighting for the Faith for any amount of time, um, you will discover that never once in the history of Fighting for the Faith have I gone to Sid Roth's program to an interview that he's conducted and said, this is something you got to listen to. Sid really nailed it here. Wow, he really... No. <laughs> I think... Sid Roth is a wingnut, you know, in the same kind of wingnuttiness of uh, Patricia King, you know, stuff like that. So, um, and there's a reason why I'm going to go that route. And so, but it's not to discredit uh, Jonathan Kahn. It's instead to show something, there's kind of a, something I've noticed, not only in uh, the interview with uh, Sid Roth, but also in other websites and places, things that are being said about Jonathan Kahn and things that Jonathan Kahn has said that are helping to fuel the controversy and the confusion regarding this book. Now, let me explain to you what the Harbinger is, okay? It's fiction, okay? if When you look at the book itself, it's labeled as fiction. It's supposedly a fictional tale. It's the story of a guy named Nuriel, and Nuriel, he... It had an encounter, several encounters, a repeated set of encounters over a period of time with a prophet-type figure. Now, the prophet-type figure is a fictional character. The, the fictional story is a device, okay? And the device is to kind of, you know, get to a point, okay? And the point is this, to kind of ask the question, is the United States of America currently experiencing, has experienced, and in danger of further judgment from God, okay? So is the United States of America being judged by God? Has it been judged by God? And is it, is the, are the judgments going to get worse? And, you know, the idea behind it is, is that there is a, there is a passage of scripture found in Isaiah chapter 9 that in there, tells the story of the northern kingdom of Israel and how they came under the judgment of God and that that same pattern that applied to the northern kingdom may be what we're seeing here. Now, I'm saying it that way because um, if you were to push real hard on the text itself to say that the author is claiming this, you'll find that the author is more or less implying certain things and he comes short of actually making the claim so the idea here is is that he implies something you kind of take the next mental leap and you kind of go with it does that make sense but the whole gist of it is this is that um he the, he believes that the united states is under judgment of some kind and that the solution is repentance and this is key okay the last chapter of the book flat out and in no uncertain or vague terms proclaims the biblical gospel repentance and the forgiveness of sins via Christ's substitutionary death on the cross it it i mean it's not an afterthought the gospel is not an afterthought the gospel is 
clearly proclaimed in the last chapter. Okay, so you know that's something that weighs into our analysis as we look at this book. Okay, now that being said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to first take a look at the concept here in the book and ask the question, is the book making the claim that the United States of America is in a covenant with God? Okay, This is really the the nub of the uh, theological issue, because this is where I think the the book itself is almost Dan Brown-esque. And let me explain what I mean by that. Okay. Y'all remember Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, which, again, labeled fiction? But Dan Brown created problems because even though the book is fiction, he basically made the claim that all the things in there were factual. Okay, um, Jonathan Kahn, in a similar way, creates some confusion. And the way he does it is, is that he claims that the book is... 90% nonfiction and 10% fiction. Even though it's a fictional book, it's a fictional account, that the fictional narrative is an apparatus for dealing with a nonfiction topic. Okay? And so uh, already we're starting to blur the lines here. Is this fiction or nonfiction? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's fictional nonfiction. You, you understand what I'm saying? So already we've got a problem because the. Jonathan Kahn is making claims that there's real nonfiction in here in this fictional story, and so we've got we've got some problems. But you, you get what I'm saying. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a section, okay? I'm going to read a section from the book itself, okay, to that, that kind of sets up the question, is the United States of America a covenant in a covenant with God, okay? And you'll you'll get what I'm saying here, and I'm gonna read I'm gonna read some context. So let me set this up. This is a conversation that's taking place between the main character Nuriel and the uh, the character who is a prophet. And there, ha- basically, this is like a journalist interviewing this this guy. And there's there's these uh, seals that are involved. I don't mean seals like <laughs> I mean like a seal like a wax seal that goes on a you know an official document, ancient seals. Okay, so. Uh, it begins with uh, the, the prophet saying, so then let's begin. You're a journalist. Did you bring a notepad or a recording device? And he says, well, I brought a recording device. Good, he said. I thought you would have. So turn it on. I removed the recorder from my coat pocket and pressed record. From then on, I, w- I was even more careful to make sure I never went anywhere without it just in case. That, so this next part. So then everything the prophet said you recorded, asked Anna. By the way, he's, be, he's being interviewed. You know, he's talking to this Anna character, you know, trying to explain to her what this uh, the series of events. He, he says, well, virtually everything. Recording of the prophet, not a bad title for a book. So as soon as I turned it on, he returned his gaze back to the waters and slightly upward, focusing on no particular object as far as I can see. And then he began to speak as if recalling some distant memory. Quote, they had no idea what was coming. They thought it would all go on as it always had, as if it would never change. They had no idea what was about to happen or what it was all leading to. Everything they had ever known up to that point, their entire world would vanish. Who? I asked. An ancient people, an ancient kingdom, Israel, the northern kingdom, 8th century B.C., they should have known it was all there from the beginning, but they forgot. Forgot what? Their purpose, their foundation, 
that which made them unique. No other nation had been called into being for the will of God or dedicated to his purposes from conception. No other people had been given a covenant, but the covenant had a condition. If they followed the ways of God, they would become the most blessed of the nations. But if they fell away and turned against his ways, then their blessings would be removed and replaced by calamity, as they did as it was. But why would they turn away if they were given so much? Well, it's a mystery, said the prophet, a kind of spiritual amnesia. When it began, they were still using God's name, but with less and less meaning behind it. Then they started merging him, confusing him with the gods of the nations. And then they began turning him, turning against him subtly at first, then outright, then brazenly driving him out of their nation, their life, and bringing in idols to fill the void. The land became covered with idols and altars to foreign gods. They rejected their covenant, abandoned their standards, and exchanged the values they had always lived by for those they had never known uh, spiritually, uh, for sensuality, uh, holiness for profanity, righteousness for self-interest. They cut themselves off from the faith on which their nation had been established and became strangers to God. And as for their most innocent, their little children, they offered them up as sacrifices. Literally, I asked? They literally killed their own children? on the altars of Baal and Molech, their newfound gods. That's how far they descended. Everything was now upside down. What they had once known as right, they now saw as outdated, intolerant, immoral. And what they once had known as immoral, they now championed and celebrated as sacred. They had transformed themselves into enemies of the God that had once they had once worshipped and the faith they had once followed until the very mention of his name was banned from their public squares and yet in spite of all of this he was merciful and called to them again and again okay by the way so far so good with one asterisk now now i'm not going to explain what the asterisk is right now but i will come back to the point okay so there's just so you know there's an asterisk here and this is a mostly accurate, emphasizing the word, mostly accurate description of the fall of the northern kingdom with one caveat, okay? But I'll explain that later. So what he's doing here is he's setting up the pattern, okay? Because Isaiah 9 is about Israel. It's not about the United States. It's about Israel, okay? But he's setting up the pattern. We're looking at Israel, okay? Watch the pattern and then watch what he does here. So the, the question on the table is is America in covenant with God? Okay. Next sentence. Uh, okay. So through the prophets, through the prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Hosea, and Amos pleading with them, warning them, calling them to return. But they rejected the call and declared war on those who remained faithful. They branded them as troublemakers, irritants, dangerous, and finally enemies of the state. They were marginalized, vilified, persecuted, and even hunted down. So the nation grew deaf to the call of those trying to save them from judgment. The alarm would have to grow louder and the warnings more severe. More severe? They would enter a new stage. The words of the prophets would now be joined to the sound of calamity. God would remove the hedge. Remove what hedge? I asked. 
the hedge he had placed around them, the hedge of protection, of national security that he that had kept them safe up to that point. As long as it was in place, they were safe. No enemy kingdom, no empire, no power on earth could touch them. But once it was removed, everything changed. Their enemies could now enter, breach their land and their gates. It was a new phase, much more dangerous than before. Thus began the days of calamities and shakings and the days of final warning. And when did this all happen? When was this hedge removed? 732 B.C. Maybe I'm missing something I said, but what does that all, what what does all this, I mean, what happened two and a half thousand years ago have to do with anything, with, with now? What does this have to do with why you're here and why I'm listening to all this? When we first met, you said it wasn't about an ancient nation, but so far all you've, you've talked about is an ancient nation. I said, not for an ancient nation, that's different. But why are you talking about an ancient nation? Because unless you understand what happened then, uh, you'll never understand what's happening now. Now? So it's some kind of a key. A key for the appointed time, for the word to be given and for the message to go forth. But not for an ancient nation. Then for what? For what nation? He was silent. I asked him again. Then for what nation? It was only then that he voiced it. America, he said. Now for America. With that, he got up from the bench and walked over toward the water. I could let it all go at that. I followed him there. All this has to do with America? Yes. So it's the appointed time for America? For a mystery to be revealed and a message to be given to America? Yes. But what does America have to do with ancient Israel? Israel was unique among uh, nations in that it was conceived and dedicated at its foundation for the purposes of God. Okay? But there was one other. A civilization also conceived and dedicated to the will of God from its conception. America. In fact, those who laid its foundations, the founding fathers, no, long before the founding fathers, those who laid America's foundations saw it as a new Israel, an Israel of the new world, and as with ancient Israel, they saw it as in covenant with God. Meaning, meaning its rise or fall would be dependent on its relationship with God. If it followed his ways, America would become the most blessed, prosperous, and powerful nation on earth. From the very beginning, they foretold it. And what they foretold would come true. America would rise to heights no other nation had ever known. Not that it was ever without fault or sin, but it would aspire to fulfill its calling. What calling? To be a vessel of redemption, an instrument of God's purposes, a light to the world. It would give refuge to the world's poor and the needy and hope to its oppressed. It would stand against tyranny. It would fight more than once against dark movements of the modern world that threatened to engulf the earth. It would liberate millions. And as much as it fulfilled its calling or aspired to, it would become the most blessed, the most prosperous, the most powerful, the most revered nation on the earth, just as its founders had prophesied. But there's a but coming, isn't there? Yes, he replied. There's always another side to the covenant. If ancient Israel fell away from God and turned against his ways, its blessings would be removed 
and replaced with curses. But wasn't Israel surrounded by nations far worse, I asked, with no concept of God or a moral code, so why would Israel be judged? Because to whom much is given, much is required, and no nation had ever been given so much, none had been given so spiritually blessed, so the standards were higher, the stakes greater, the judgment when it came more severe. And America, I said, and America has done much good, and there's no shortage of nations far exceeding any of its faults or sins, but no nation in the modern world has ever been given so much. None has been so blessed to whom much is given, much is required. If a nation so blessed by God should turn away from him, what then? Its blessings will be replaced with curses? Yes. And has America turned away from God, I asked? It has turned, and it is turning. Okay, now I'm going to stop right there. Now, here's the issue, okay? This is kind of issue number one as you read the book. This doesn't explicitly say that America is in a covenant with God, but it draws the parallel so closely, so closely, that it's implied. In fact, the rest of the story doesn't make any sense without that implication being true, okay? Now, in interviews that uh, Jonathan Kahn has done, it, where he talks about whether or not America is a it, is a covenant nation, he will flat out say, "Well, America is not a covenant nation." Okay, and he goes so far as to say, "I never actually said that it was, but that the uh, found the 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 real founders, the you know, kind of like the Pilgrims and the Puritans, that they had." formed a covenant with God, and so the book is written kind of from the position of, what if God took them up on their on their offer, okay? They offered the nation to God, what if God took them up on their offer, okay? So that's what he's working from, is this fictional hypothetical, okay? Now, the issue is this, is that it the, the just the average person reading this book could easily, and probably I would say the average person reading this book, would come to the conclusion that the United States is somehow in a covenant relationship with God. But when pushed on the on the issue uh, in interviews that Jonathan Kahn has done, that's where he says, no, no, I'm not saying that. It's, he's, it's, well, for lack of a better way of putting it, this is a literary device that he's employing here that then becomes kind of the linchpin for understanding these harbingers. Because the idea is this, is that Isaiah 9, when you talk to Jonathan Kahn, he clearly says it's about Israel, it's not about America. Okay? But the idea is this, is that but even though it's about Israel, it may be showing a pattern that God uses um, when he judges other nations. So that's the idea, is, is that it's clearly about Israel, it's only about Israel, it's not about America, but... Then, if well, that's you know that the that's the case, it may show a pattern that God uses. Now, remember the asterisk that I uh, that I pointed you pointed out to you. Okay, remember I said there was an asterisk in there, and that there was something I wanted to go back and clean up. Okay, um, and and it's go, it's going back to that opening portion from chapter three. Listen again to this. They had no idea what was coming. They thought it would all go on as it always had as if it would never change. They had no idea what was going to happen or what it was all leading to. Everything they had ever known up to that point, their entire world would vanish. Okay, Now, not trying to uh, 
slice, uh, you know, hairs here, okay, but I'm going to throw a flag and say, I'm going to challenge that. Was the northern kingdom of Israel completely oblivious to the judgment that God was going to unleash? Okay. Now, if you know the story, the story basically goes is that, you know, the kind of the first event that happened is that God sent the Assyrians to attack the, the, the capital of the northern kingdom. Okay. And according to Jonathan Kahn, the reason why they were successful because God lifted the hedge of protection that he had over them. Okay, now that's another theological point we can we could debate. But the question is, were they completely unaware? Now, remember our three rules for sound biblical interpretation. They are context, context, and context. So that being the case, if we look at the bigger context of what's going on, not in Isaiah 9, but in the chapters preceding it, it, what are we going to find? Are we going to find that they had no clue or that they knew exactly what was coming? The reason I say that is, is because the book of Isaiah, in that you know, in the the prophets' uh, writings, there, there's kind of a progression that goes on, and you'll you'll see that you know the, the our our kind of our favorite passages, you know, for Easter, you know, prophesying of the the sign of Emmanuel in chapter seven, that. Um, that there, 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 that in chapter seven and chapter nine, we got two prophecies of the Messiah, clear prophecies of the Messiah. But chapter eight, um, it's clear that the prophet Isaiah, Yeshayahu, uh, he uh, clearly t- warned the northern kingdom that God was going to send Assyria. Let me read to you from chapter eight, chapter eight, verse one. Then the Lord said to me, this is Isaiah, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging, uh, belonging to Mahar Shalal uh, Hashbaz, and I, will, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of uh, Jebarakiah, to attest for me. I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, the mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and will sweep on into Judah and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Okay, now, the reason I bring this up is because if we're going to claim that in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 10, that we're seeing some a, a pattern, a pattern of judgment, okay, that God could then repeat in our time, if he's going to judge the United States, then the pattern doesn't begin with Assyria attacking uh, Samaria. That, the, 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 the pattern doesn't begin there. It begins with God clearly warning that this is what's going to happen. And so that little asterisk that I put in there is actually important because I don't think biblically that's accurate. 
It's not accurate to say that the people of the northern kingdom had no clue what was coming. They knew exactly what was coming because Isaiah the prophet told them that God was going to send the king of Assyria to attack them. Okay? So if there's really a pattern involved in Isaiah chapter 9, you got to understand the pattern begins not in Isaiah 9, but it begins in 8 with a clear warning from God. Because with that clear warning, then Isaiah chapter 9 makes more sense. Okay, and what you see in Isaiah chapter 9 is that after God sends the Assyrians in judgment against the northern kingdom, that the northern kingdom acts defiantly. It's not just that they're defiant against the Assyrians. They're defiant against God, and that becomes the the hermeneutical linchpin to whether or not Jonathan Kahn is really giving us an accurate hermeneutic in 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 his reading and understanding of the so-called principles and patterns that are in Isaiah chapter nine, I, I just I lay that out for you ahead of time so that you can understand what I'm saying. So I don't think he has the pattern correct. I think hermeneutically he skipped and omitted something that actually makes Isaiah chapter nine really make sense. Um, and that's what's missing also in the nine eleven attack is a clear warning from God that that was what was going to happen. So the question then comes, then, as we look at Isaiah chapter 9 and Jonathan Kahn's handling of, John, of, uh, of, of, cha- of Isaiah chapter 9, is it, it, in what sense can we apply this to today? What are we to get from this? Okay, if it's truly about Israel and not about the United States, in what sense does it apply? So this is kind of a hermeneutical question that needs to be, uh, you know, to be addressed, but you know, we... we clearly pointed out that if there's a pattern in play, the pattern doesn't begin in Isaiah 9, it begins in 8, okay, with a clear warning from God that this is what's going to happen, and that's the missing piece. So, um, you know, that's the, that's the issue that we're going to be dealing with. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to change gears a little bit here. We've kind of opened this up and uh, brought some biblical passages to bear in here. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to change gears, and we're going to listen to some audio now. And these, this is audio... We're going to start with an interview that uh, Jonathan Kahn did that's posted at christianbook.com, christianbook.com. And uh, I don't know the name of the gal who's interviewing him, but he talks about how he came up with the idea for the book, The Harbinger. And I want you to hear it from him so that we can interact with what he's saying. So here's this interview, this author interview. Good afternoon. We're very pleased to have Rabbi Jonathan Kahn with us, who has just had his book, The Harbinger, release on the New York Times bestseller, number 10, in ChristianBook.com's fiction area. It's number two, and it's just flown off the shelves. We're very excited. And obviously, he has a wonderful message to share. So welcome, Rabbi. Blessed to be here. I am thrilled. One of the things I'd like you to do is tell us a little bit about yourself. How did this harbinger phenomenon begin? Okay, well, I'm a Messianic leader, rabbi, pastor of a congregation outside of New York City in Wayne, New Jersey, called Beth Israel. And so we live around the area of 9-11. When 9-11 happened, I had a sense of something, there was something much deeper uh, happening and uh, a prophetic thing regarding America. 
Um, and I was led to a certain section of the Bible. And at the same time, I found out later that David Wilkerson at Times Square Church, he, was, he said that was, he used the same verse and said that this was also, this was God's word for America. And that, that verse is? That verse, well, it's, it, the section is Isaiah 9. And that's the section when Israel, well, uh, when Israel was first attacked, Israel had fallen away from God, and God allowed the hedge of its protection to be removed temporarily for an enemy to make a strike. So here's what I got after 9-11, and here's what David Wilkerson got. A, a little, a while later, I was standing at the corner of Ground Zero, and I was drawn to a particular object, which was a tree, that would become the first puzzle piece of a mystery, an ancient mystery, that would unfold, and as it unfolded, it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I was just following it. It was like the Lord was leading. I didn't know where it was going to end, but it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger until it became this revelation, which is called the Harbinger. And then it, it went on to, it really, that was from 9-11, but it's affected everything. This ancient mystery affects everything uh, from 9-11 to the, the crash of Wall Street and what's happening in America, what is what is yet to happen. Okay. Now I'm going to pause there for a second. Okay. As he tells the story, okay, I'll, I'll be blunt. I mean, when I first saw this, I immediately went, yeah, if I had a dollar for every time I heard a story similar to this, then I'd be an extremely wealthy man. But uh, I, 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 alas, I have not received a dollar for every time I've heard a story. So already the, the story itself is the, is the type of template that makes me go, eh, yeah, probably not. You know, already I'm on the, okay, you're going to have to really prove this to me based upon some really good, solid hermeneutics that, you know, there's a good reason to believe you, okay? So already the the story itself, as he tells it, because of its subjectivity and uh, really no way of verifying, you know, it, it it's like, eh, I'm... I'm Sorry, I'm skeptical. That's just where I'm at at this point. But we continue. Well, let's back us back up just a bit. First of all, how did you get focused on Isaiah nine? How how did you draw the parallel between what happened in ancient Israel and what happened at Ground Zero? Well, first is one. Well, first is that's kind of the verses came when I when I really was just going through the Bible. Um, the well, the section, and then and then I realized the section was. Uh, a parallel because that was the two. That was the beginning. Actually, it was the beginning of judgment of ancient Israel. Um, it was the first sign of the judgment of a nation. It didn't just happen with Israel. It happened with Judah. The first sign is that removal of the he- of the hedge of protection. Okay, got to pause there. Okay, so, all right. So here's my question: um, If this is a pattern, then w- w- was this pattern repeated when God judged Judah and sent Judah into captivity in Babylon? And was this same pattern then repeated when uh, God took the Jews out of the land of Israel uh, at, by force uh, from, by the Roman army when the, uh, when the temple was destroyed? Because they rejected the Messiah. Okay? These are the types of questions that, that I think need to be asked. Okay? If this is a pattern, and here he's making an allusion to that somehow this pattern was repeated with Judah, this might be a question I might ask Jonathan tomorrow, is can you demonstrate or lay out how the same pattern then was used by God when it came to Judah? Okay, when Judah was judged for uh, her idolatries. Y- y- you understand what I'm saying? We continue. And that's at Isaiah 9, 9 and 10. Um, and then when I saw this tree, you know, and then I've just started searching, it zeroed in on Isaiah 9, 10, which, which, uh, which was their vow of defiance that they, they made after they were attacked. Instead of being humbled by God, 
they defied him. Yeah, yeah, they did. This is true. The, the actually Isaiah nine ten is a is is this vow of defiance. I completely agree with him here. That being said, though, the context is important that they were warned clearly ahead of time by God that the, that the king of Assyria was coming as a judgment, and then after it happened, they defied God. See, if you take that step out, then you don't understand the 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 whole picture. Yeah. Anyway, we can. They made this vow, and in that vow is where these basically the, there are these harbingers. Harbinger is a god. They defied him. They made this vow, and in that vow is where these basically the, there are these harbingers. Harbinger is a sign, an omen, uh, a warning, and so these in the last days of ancient Israel, these these nine prophetic signs or harbingers appear before its destruction. Those same nine harbingers have now reappeared in America. Okay, so that's the premise, okay? So, th these harbingers that are in chapter 9. Now, I'm going to read the, the verse in context without, you know, with his, without his commentary or his, his, you know, pointing out the harbingers so that we can really take a look at this and really see what's going on. Now, I'm going to read it in context, starting at the beginning of uh, of chapter 9, because it's important that we see the bigger context, because in there is the promise of the Messiah. Okay, let me, let me read this. Chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who, who was in anguish, in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, I put this in here because this is in the context of the passage that is the center of of the harbinger itself. It's important that here you recognize that God is promising the Savior, the Messiah, the one who would save and redeem Israel ultimately, right? Okay? So in at, on the tail end of this promise of the Messiah then comes this judgment against the northern kingdom. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, quote, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dress stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. 
But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies, the Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west, devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is still is stretched out still. And the people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day, the elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, and has no compassion on their fa uh, fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all of the, this his anger has not turned away, and from his hand... Is stretched in his hand is stretched out still. Okay, so now get what's going on there. Okay, when you read the text itself, yes, it's clear that the attack of the Assyrians against the northern kingdom was met by sheer defiance on the part of the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay, so much so, they said, the bricks have fallen, but we'll build with dressed stones, okay? The sycamores have been cut down, but we'll put cedars in their place, okay? So, but they knew it was a judgment from God. That's the key. That really is the key. They actually had a word from Yeshayahu, from Isaiah the prophet, that this attack by the king of Assyria was a judgment from God and their defiance was directed directly at God. It wasn't a speculation. It was a clear known fact that God had told them that this is what was going to happen and their response was defiance. Okay. Now, by the way, when we look at the, uh, the incidences surrounding uh, the, the attack on 9-11, what's missing? is a clear prophecy from God warning the the United States that if they don't repent, God's going to send terrorists to tear the, ter the, the buildings down. So in the book itself, as Jonathan Kahn elaborates on this point where we've got, you know, the United States acting in defiance, the problem is, is that if this is truly the pattern, the United States is acting in ignorant defiance, whereas Israel acted in knowing, wanton defiance against God. So what happens is, is the pattern that he's trying to draw here starts to break down hermeneutically when you look at the fuller context of the story. And that's important. Now what I'm going to do here is I'm going to switch gears a little bit and I'm going to play for you audio from, uh, from Jonathan Kahn's appearance on Sid Roth's program. Now, here's the deal. Okay, um... You're going to have to not judge Jonathan Kahn by, by the fact that he appeared on Sid Roth's program. The idea is this. Um, you don't want to be guilty of, of guilt by association. Okay, um, Jonathan Kahn has made clear that he does not hold the same theology or ideas as Sid Roth, and that since you know, he was promoting a book and there's publishers and publicity folks involved, that the, what somebody does to promote a book does not necessarily reflect their theology. Does that make sense? So with that, I'm going to start start this off, and uh, here's Sid Roth to uh, to kind of lay out the the understanding of this program. Is it possible that there is an ancient mystery that holds the key? 
to America's future. Could this same mystery be behind current events from 9-11 to our economic meltdown to even the war in Iraq? Okay, i got to point something out here. All this talk about an ancient mystery, yeah, it, <laughs> you're, you're immediately going, Gnosticism, Gnosticism. Yeah, yeah right, because, you know, that not you know it's the Gnostics who use this secret mystery stuff type of language, right? Okay, um, just you know, keep in mind it's Sid Roth making the claim, but the problem is is that there's similar claims made in the book. So the promotional materials and stuff like that for the book really hype up this ancient mystery thing, which is theologically problematic, but makes perfect sense if you're trying to sell books. We continue. Hello, Sid Roth here. Welcome to my world, where it's naturally supernatural. I want to read a little to you from our most recent newsletter. Is it possible that there exists an ancient mystery in which is hidden the secret of America's future? Is it possible this mystery lies behind everything from 9-11 to the war in Iraq to the American housing bubble? and it's bursting, to the crash of Wall Street, and the global economy, to the Great Recession, and much more, even to the President of the United States. Now, there's a Messianic Jewish rabbi that lives right outside of New York City that went to the grounds of 9-11 after that horrific event occurred. And let me read you a quote by him. As I was standing at the edge of ground zero, I came across the first puzzle piece of an ancient biblical mystery and a prophetic message known as the harbinger that concerns the future of America. I have Rabbi Jonathan Kahn here. And uh, Jonathan, uh, you use a word, and I want to understand what you mean by it, harbinger. What, What do you mean? A harbinger is a sign, an omen, or a foreshadow of something that is yet to come. It could be a harbinger of something good, usually a harbinger of something that you take warning in, a harbinger of judgment in this case. That's exactly what it is. And the thing that is so stunning is that point by point, The Holy Spirit revealed to Jonathan that the pattern that happened to Israel. Okay, did you hear what he just said? That the Holy Spirit revealed to Jonathan. Okay, that's, that's problematic. That's really problematic. Is happening to the United States of America. And he found nine harbingers, nine warning signs. Jonathan, how important is this revelation at this moment in history? I think it couldn't be more important because God gives signs to a nation in warning it of judgment and God is calling America. America is in danger by these harbingers. It's a warning. It's to save the nation, but it is a sign that we are in a very dangerous period. Okay, now stop here. Okay, this is where we're now slipping out of fiction into nonfiction. Okay? These nine harbingers, the way he's pitching this, are clearly a warning from God to the United States of America. Okay? So is this you understand what I'm saying here? At this point, this is the apparently where it slips where the ninety percent nonfiction kicks in. So he's pitching the his insight to this passage 
and it's key this mysterious ancient key that somehow this these harbingers are a pattern that now applies to us and we need to pay attention cuz God is talking okay i Briefly, tell me yeah. what happened to Israel at the time uh, of this prophecy. It's, it, it's Isaiah 9, uh, verse 10. Yeah, that's going to be the key. Isaiah 9, 10 is the key to the harbingers. Ancient Israel uh, was founded by God. It was, it was blessed by God, but it turned away. It rebelled against him. It drove him out of its life. And what happened is God sent prophets to them, and he called them, warned them. Finally, he did something to shake them up to as a wake-up call, and he withdrew their hedge of national protection. He lifted it up. It was temporary, but he lifted it up that an enemy struck the land and inflicted damage, traumatized the nation. But it was temporary. It was okay, now, I, I, again, i got to bring my asterisks into play here. It's not just that God, quote, lifted the hedge of protection. It's that Isaiah, Yeshayahu, warned the northern kingdom that he was sending the king of Assyria. Okay? It's, you see, it's more than just a, a lifting of a hedge. It's a flat-out sending of a Assyrian king in judgment. There's a difference between those two, and that difference makes a difference in whether or not these, this is really a pattern that we need to be paying attention to. You understand what I'm saying? Limited, they withdrew, and then there was a normalcy. It was to wake them up, a wake-up call, but they did not wake up, or they chose to keep defying God. Instead of repenting, turning back to God, they became even more defiant. Right, this is true. And they made a vow, and, and that vow is Isaiah 9, 10. They said this, the bricks have fallen, but we will rebuild with hewn stone. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will plant cedars in their place. And what that meant was, we're not going to be humbled. We're not going to turn back. We're going to continue away from God. In fact, we're going to come back even stronger. We're going to replace weaker things with stronger things. It, it, right. And they did this knowing that God is the one who sent the king of Assyria to sack them. It's like a defiant exactly. spirit. Exactly, it's defiant. You said the commentaries on this always do that, that same word. They say they, had a, they breathe the spirit of defiance, exactly. So okay, that's the but that, that was ancient Israel, and, right. and warning after warning, right. God, I can almost feel God's heart saying, I do not want to see you destroyed. You're, you're my firstborn. Please heed the warnings. But Jonathan, why did you feel that this was a warning, a, a prototype, if you will, for the United States of America. Okay, well, is, okay, uh, ancient Israel did not turn and they were destroyed. So now we have America. America was also founded on God's word, was founded to fulfill his purpose. America has also turned, been turning and turning more and more rapidly away from God and his ways. Okay, see the connection here? So to the average person listening, what's the conclusion they're going to call you know, come up with. Well, the United States, just like Israel, is a nation that has a special covenant-type relationship with God. You see, the the problem here is is that the way this is being pitched, it's creating a lot of theological confusion. And it it's important to note that Sid Roth is not the one in control of the narrative here. It's Jonathan Kahn. God in his mercy 
calls out to a nation. And if it doesn't respond, the callings get more severe. And what happened now is the first harbinger, or the first thing that happened was the breach, was that, that lifting up of the national security, allowing an enemy to strike the land. A wake-up call. You're talking about 9-11. Well, now, well, now yeah. yeah not, that was for ages, but, but now God did it with America. But the problem is a step is skipped. Assyria was warned by the prophet Isaiah that the, the attack was going to take place. The United States received no prophetic warning that an attack was going to take place unless they repented. So already the pattern begins to break down, and it's not a small issue. It's a pretty big one. We, that happened on exactly September 11, 2001. The, the national uh, defense of, of America, the, the hedge was lifted up. He allowed an enemy to strike, same way, limited scope, limited time, traumatize the nation, a wake-up call. 9-11 was an alarm try, seeking to save America to, from the road it's going on. Oh, okay, so the progressive judgments were nine harbingers, nine yes. warnings. Let's talk about one, the Gazette Stone. Okay. Okay, this is, this is what happened. If you, and you look at the key of Isaiah 9:10, it says, the bricks have fallen, but we will replace them with hewn stone. What is hewn, hewn stone? So, yeah, in, in Hebrew, it's the word gazit. Gazit means cut, quarried, uh, taken out of mountain rock. It's a, it's a strong thing. They made it into a big rectangular uh, mass of stone. What they were saying is there was destruction and it was clay bricks, but we're going to come back stronger as a nation. So we're going to take a stronger thing. We're going to build higher and bigger and, and better. So what they did is they took these gazit stones, they went to the quarries of the mountains, cut it out, brought it back to the ground of destruction where the bricks had fallen, and there they vowed, with this, we're going to rebuild the nation. Okay, a sign of defiance. Okay, right, and that was knowing defiance against God's judgment. Okay, fine, God, you're going to judge us? You're going to knock down our, our brick? Well, we're going to put a stronger stone. You're going to knock down our trees? We'll, put, we'll plant better trees. This was a knowing act of defiance, knowing, cognitive. That's, is, that's, that's Israel. Israel. What about America? Well, that's the thing. This is what happened. I mean, it's, after 9-11 in New York, they went to the mountains. They quarried out a rock, a 20-ton rectangular block. According to the, the, the harbinger, it has to be brought back to the ground instruction. They bring it to New York City, bring it to ground zero, place it on the pavement of ground zero. They have a ceremony around the stone. They have leaders there, governor of New York, governor of New Jersey, the mayor. They pronounce vows of defiance over the stone. They say, this is the way this stone, America's going to come back. Yeah, this is the quote. Today, we, the heirs of that revolutionary spirit of defiance, lay this cornerstone and unmistakably signal to the word the unwavering strength of this nation and our resolve to fight for freedom. Okay, that was jo Governor George Pataki. Spirit of defiance. Well, well, here's the question. Okay, who were they defying? In the case of the Northern Kingdom, they were flat out defying God who was judging them. Was Governor Pataki defying God? His spirit of defiance was not aimed at God, but aimed at the terrorists. And that is not a small difference. It's a big difference. Stronger than ever, we're going to rebuild. In fact, you said before, you said the spirit of defiance. That's what the commentaries say about this. The governor of New York actually says, we are the heirs of the spirit of defiance as we lay this stone. And, and he used the word defiance? He, he used, not just defiance, he used, he used the word spirit of defiance. He said, we are spirit of defiance. You see this over and over again. If there was just one parallel between Israel 
and what happens to them and their eventual destruction, and one parallel with the United States, we might say, so what? But there are nine harbingers with progressive judgments. This may be, no, this is the most important prophetic show you will ever see. We'll be right back. Okay. Um, <laughs> apparently, Sid Roth thinks that now this is a prophetic show. So now we're, we've now, this is a message of prophecy. Okay. Now, one of the one of the critiques about Jonathan Kahn out there, if you've read any of the critiques, is that um, the the claims regarding him being a prophet. Well, even though I don't think he's personally stated he's a prophet, the problem is is that some of the people promoting him have uh, claimed that he's a prophet. Let me give you another example. This is taken from the Jim Baker Show website. Um, if you're familiar with Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, well, Tammy Faye has passed and they divorced anyway after the whole PTL scandal. But Jim does a show now, a television show, and I think he's got a new wife, uh, Lori. But um, anyway, from the June 18th, 2012 post... On the Jim Baker Show website, you can find it at jimbakershow.com. There's two Ks there, B-A-K-K-E-R, show.com. Uh, the headline reads, The Summer of Prophecy Begins with John Shorey. Okay? Third paragraph down, here's what it says. The prophets are coming. The word is going out. So apparently there's going to be prophets on Jim Baker's show. The prophets are coming. The word is going out. Rabbi Jonathan Kahn, Sid Roth, John Kilpatrick, Rick Joyner, John Shorey, Bobby Connor, Cindy Jacobs, and many others are ministering to a worldwide audience through our television program. So here's the deal, okay? Now, I understand that just because you appear on somebody's television program, that that does not mean that you're endorsing all of the people who have preceded you on the program. That's not the issue. The issue is this, is that the way Jonathan Kahn's appearance was pitched is that um, that he's a prophet. Okay, now, listen, I've spoken at several different engagements. I get asked to speak at a, at least a few engagements a year, and as I, the longer I do my program, the more places I get invited to speak, okay? So I understand how... Um, well, appearances on different events or things get promoted, okay? And generally, the person who's being promoted has some say in how they're described or promoted. So let me put it this way. If I was the one who wrote The Harbinger and my publicist and publishing company was wanting me to get out there and promote the book so that we would sell more copies of it, okay, um, and I was to be scheduled to appear on Jim Baker's program. <laughs> Ooh. Um, if that were the case, okay, if Jim Baker were to promote me as a prophet, the next thing I would do would be on the phone. I'd be on the phone with Jim Baker's production people. Excuse me. Um, I don't claim to be a prophet. I'm not a prophet. Prophet is a term that has a lot of theological baggage with it and a lot of theological implications that go along with it. So 
um, I, I'm not a prophet. And so I would be on the phone saying, you need to get that, get rid of that. I'm not a prophet and I'm not going to show on, show up on your program with the ex, with you setting up the expectation to the people in your audience that I'm a prophet when I'm not. Okay. So there's a problem here. There's a problem here in the sense that there's people making claims about Jonathan Kahn that let's just say sound like he's, you know, he's way above his, what his, his pay grade should be. Okay. You, you get what I'm saying. Now, this creates a problem. Why? Because it strikes at his credibility. Okay. If you want us to take your message at face value, don't, don't allow or without major protest, don't allow people to promote you as a prophet or as what you're doing is being prophetic. Does, it, does that make sense? You got to be really careful here. The, when you play the prophecy card, that's a big card to play. And it, it, it automatically brings into play, um, you know, the biblical mandates regarding testing as to whether or not somebody is a true prophet or a false prophet. Okay. So that's where that's coming from. And the way he's been promoted is, well, less than helpful. Now, let's continue with Sid Roth's program. Hello, Sid Roth here with Rabbi Jonathan Kahn. And there is a scripture. It's found in the prophet Isaiah, the ninth chapter, the 10th verse, in which it includes nine harbingers, warnings for Israel. It's God's heart saying, please, Israel, turn from your wickedness so I can bless you. But it's progressive judgments that come to Israel until finally uh, they're, they're totally wiped off the land. Now, we don't want to see this happen in the United States of America. And that's why I've asked Rabbi Jonathan Kahn, who takes a Messianic Jewish rabbi with a prophetic vent that lives right outside of New York City that actually went to the grounds of 9-11 and was able to put this together. Now, Jonathan, there's a mystery about the trees. Yes. Explain that yeah. to me. The key in, in Isaiah 9-10 says, the next part of it says, that it says, the sycamores have been cut down. Now, what is that? The Assyrians came in, that strike, that warning strike, they ravaged the land, the sycamores were ravaged, and, they, and it's a sign of, biblical sign of judgment, because actually it occurs in Egypt. There's a psalm that says God struck down the sycamore, national judgment, a sign of uprooting. God was going to uproot the nation if it didn't turn back to him. So the sycamores have fallen, but what does that have to do with America? First of all, the terrorists of 9-11 weren't interested in sycamores. They, they struck cities, not fields. So the sycamore has to be struck down, sign of national judgment. So what happens? amazing eerie thing on 9-11 the last tower the northern tower as it's crashing to the ground sends out a beam into the air and it just so happens all around nine all around at ground zero there's concrete asphalt buildings but there's one little plot of land that has soil and growing it strikes an object the object is a tree what kind of tree it's the sycamore Sycamore just happened to be growing okay now I'm gonna point something out here this is the type of case that he builds throughout the book, okay? And I'll tell you who it reminds me of. It reminds me of the same type of, well, of insights that we get from William Tapley, 
Okay. Um, you know, really kind of reading into things. And, and so this is a circumstantial case that he's building. And I'll be blunt. I didn't find the case to be compelling. Okay. I saw it to be circumstantial. However, I, with that said, I did find it like more than ironic that um, on the day after uh, 9-11, Tom Daschle um, rose to you know the floor of the Senate and delivered a speech where he quoted positively Isaiah chapter nine verse ten. I'm not going to play that here, but I mean that was the kind of thing you just went, really, <laughs> really. <laughs> it was just so bizarre. I mean, but it, we're, hang in there here because I want to get to talk to talk a little bit about the need for repentance. But I want to put that in context of a right understanding of which covenant community or people is in need of repenting. Well, so yeah, there's a there's a punchline I want to get to because I think that as well meaning as uh, Rabbi Khan is here, I think that he's actually created more confusion rather than light because there is a covenant community that truly has a covenant that's in a covenant relationship with God that is in need of repentance and i think is responsible for a lot of the 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 degeneration of what we're seeing happening in the greater culture but i want to i want to continue with this for just a little bit before i make that point at the corner of ground zero is struck down the sign of national judgment but how how could from so from the wreckage something fell from the tower it shoots it across and, which as, is a sign of national judgment. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, and you say, well, how could, well, first of all, this was the, you know, the sycamore of, of Israel was the Middle Eastern sycamore. It matched Israel, but God translated the harbinger. This is the Western sycamore, which is named after that very Middle Eastern sycamore of 9-11, of, of Isaiah 9-10, happens to be struck down right at the corner of ground zero. And the people, there's something strange about the harbingers, they make signs of them. They take the fallen sycamore and they make it a sign and they call it the, the sycamore of ground zero. People gather, they put it on display and they have no idea. It's supposed to be a symbol of hope. They have no idea this is an ancient harbinger of judgment of a nation, mm. of uprooting if it doesn't turn back to God. Tell me the second tree. Okay, you go on right, it's like in progression, precisely down the prophecy, it says the sycamores have fallen, but Israel vows we will plant cedars in their place. Same thing as the stone. They're saying, okay, you struck down our sycamores, God, we're not gonna be humbled. We're gonna take a stronger tree, the cedar, and we're gonna rise like that tree. It's gonna be a, a symbol of the nation. We're gonna come back stronger than ever. So they will, the, the sign is the harbinger is they plant the cedar, except the cedar, the, the word of course is English. The, the original word is the Erez tree, Erez. Erez means cedar, but it also means any conifer tree, a coniferous tree, literally the most, the most exact translation is panacea tree. So just keep that in mind. The, the harbinger has to be, they have to take the sycamore out and replace it, not with another sycamore, which would be natural, but with a panacea tree or an erez tree. So would this happen? A strange thing. In 2003, November, a, a sign, a tree appears in the sky. It's on a crane. They are lowering it down to get an exact spot. They lower it over the corner of ground zero to get it in the exact spot where the sycamore had been struck down. What was the tree? It was a conifer tree. It was a panacea tree. It was the exact Erez tree of the scriptures of Isaiah 9:10. And the same thing, they make it a sign. They call it the tree of hope 
for Israel, they're saying, this is our hope, we're going to come back stronger than ever. Called a tree of hope. They gather, have a ceremony around it. A man pronounces things over it, and it's the, it celebrates human defiance. And, uh, and, it's, and it's, the, it's this, the exact harbinger. They don't know what they're doing. And, but nobody knows what they're doing. No human hand is putting this together. No, that's the key, actually. This, this is the key to the point that I'm making. Unlike the, the, the northern kingdom... Okay, the Northern Kingdom, when they, you know, said, you tore down our houses of bricks, well, we'll build up ones with hewn stone. You tore down our cedars, we're going to replace them with, our, our sycamores, we're going to replace them with cedar. See, when the Northern Kingdom did that, they knew they were acting defiantly. But here we have these circumstantial parallels and and they're somewhat um, the, the the biblical butter is being spread very thinly here um you know these these connections that, but it's he said the people in the United States had no idea that these were harbingers but the people of the northern kingdom did know okay he they did know what they were doing whereas the United States didn't and the reason why the people in the northern kingdom knew is because the prophet Isaiah told them this is what was going to happen and that it was a judgment from God. So we're kind of left with a problem here. Now, I'm going to I'm going to pause the Rabbi Khan's uh, appearance at this point. Okay? I'm going to pause and I want to reflect on where we've been so far because in the book, I mean, again, it's fiction, okay? It's it's a it's a novel. Um, you know, it's kind of taught in a rabbinic tradition, if you know what I mean. There's, a, there's, a, you know, there's a lot of questions being asked and answered, and there's kind of, you know, the solving of a mystery type of thing. And you know, he, there's these nine harbingers. It's a circumstantial case, um, and I, you know, I don't even, I wasn't convinced by it. That's just the bottom line. But if you remember, I started off by asking the question: Is the United States in a covenant relationship with God? Okay. Jonathan Kahn doesn't outright say that the United States is in a covenant relationship. It, the, the, it's the premise behind the fictional story that what if God took the founding fathers up on their dedication of dedicating the country to God? And if what we're seeing happening you know, in the news today, the, the uh, 9-11, the collapse of the economy, the war in Iraq. I mean, all of that, all of that stuff. Are these, are these harbingers or warnings or omens from God warning us of God's current and impending and growing judgment against the United States? Okay. And, you know, that his, you know, I would say that based on what I read, his position is yes, this is that. And this is a warning, and we need to repent. And the call for repentance is to believe and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. That's clearly the message that he's preaching and teaching. Okay, Now, that being the case, I don't agree with his take on the prophet Isaiah. I don't think that's correct. However, I think that this topic itself is salvageable and if we take kind of a bigger uh, step back and take a slightly broader view of this discussion, okay, I think that there's this is a topic worth discussing and having a good family conversation regarding, and that's this, okay? There's a lot of confusion in the body of Christ regarding the United States of America, okay? I do not believe for a second that the United States of America is in a covenant relationship with God. 
not at all, okay? If we were going to have a biblical parallel between any nation and uh, in the Bible and the United States, I would draw the parallel between Assyria and the United States, not Israel and the United States. That's just, that's where I would go with this. But I want to point something out, and that's this, is that there is a group of people in the United States that is in a community uh, in a covenant relationship with God and i think we need to explore this topic okay and this is where i think the book it uh, what jonathan Kahn's book is unhelpful okay but it's helpful in this sense is that it's it's opened up the topic let's have the conversation okay so you need your bible for this next part you need your bible for this next part and what i'm going to do is i'm going to read a few chapters from the book of Romans, okay? Um, and before I do that, I just want to give a, a quick gloss to uh, the uh, the gospel of Matthew, the gospel uh, according to Matthew, okay? Church history tells us that the gospel of Matthew was written by Levi, the Ma- Matthew, the, the tax collector, okay? And that church history t- also tells us that his gospel was more than likely originally written in Hebrew, and even though we don't have a single extant copy of the Gospel of Matthew in Hebrew, important to note that if you take a look at the way Matthew is written, Matthew is taking great lengths to show that Jesus is Israel reduced to one man. Okay? And, you know, you, you from the prophecies, out of out of Egypt, I have called my son. You know, you, you'll notice that Jesus's life, the way Matthew lays it out, has direct parallels to the life of Israel itself. Forty days of wandering in the wilderness, being called out of Egypt, things like that. This is unmistakable language that is showing us that Jesus himself is Israel reduced to one human being. Okay? And that Israel... Reduced to one, Jesus fulfills the Mosaic Covenant, fulfills the Mosaic Law perfectly for us. Okay, This is an important piece of theological information because over and again, we confuse something very important uh, when we look at the United States of America. And that's this, the, the, the idea that, the, that church and state are separate in the United States. In ancient Israel, Israel was a theocracy with God as king, plain and simple. So there was no distinction between church and state. You could almost make the case that Israel is the ancient church. And in theologically, you would be on solid ground. Okay. Now I'm not a I'm familiar with this idea of replacement theology. This is not what I'm pitching here. So I, I don't want you to think I'm replacing, you know, I'm, I'm pitching replacement theology. Instead, that, you know, that's not it at all. Okay. Ancient Israel was the church, and Israel today is the church. And that's the theological distinction I want to get into. And here's the idea in the United States, where, we, where Christians biff it, is they think of church and state as one thing when they start to think of the United States of America as a covenant nation. What happens is is it starts to blur what we, you know what we Lutherans call the two kingdoms. Okay? It blurs them into one. Okay? You can't do that. Okay? 
in our day and age, the church and the state are two different things, but in ancient Israel, they were one and the same, okay? So as Christians, we need to take a hard look at the real covenant community, okay? To do that, we're going to take a look at Romans. I'm going to start at chapter 9, and I'm going to read sections of the uh, basically Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, even the sections that don't necessarily apply to the point that I'm trying to make, so that we don't lose the context, okay? Paul here begins to start to talk about what about his genetic brothers, okay? Paul was born of the tribe of Benjamin, right? Uh, and he was a Pharisee, and he was a, he was a Jew. He was a Jew by birth, Okay, and here he he lays out for us a proper way of understanding the church's relationship to people who are genetically Jewish. And I'm going to give you biblical categories. And I think that this is relevant for us looking at, you know, the greater conversation regarding the harbinger, because without this, it's easy to you know, get into the jumbled mess that this has really become. Okay. Romans chapter 9, verse 1, Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. This would be his uh, Jewish kinsmen, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, notice the theological distinction that Paul is making here, okay? There's Israel, genetically, and then there's Israel. And he's saying not all who are genetically descendants of Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. They are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah has conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born they had and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. So then God has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. 
So you will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he has called not from the jews only but also from the gentiles as indeed he says in the prophet hosea those who were not my people i will call my people and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah protects, predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear witness to I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So how then... Will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, 
who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For, quote, their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scriptures say of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first, as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, that's a symbol of Israel, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. 
Now, I read all of that to make this point. Yeah, let me read just a little bit more, though. And even if they, if they do not continue in, in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and have grafted contrary to nature a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Okay, now, now I can make my conclusion. Here's the idea, okay? America is not in a covenantal relationship with God, okay? It's not. And I understand that Rabbi Khan didn't explicitly say that. However, the book kind of implies it. And the way he pitches the book, it, it, it depends upon that idea in order for this parallel to somehow have more impact. But listen to me on this. Every single one of you who's been brought to repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins is in a covenantal relationship with God, according to the new covenant. Okay? And according to this passage, you Gentiles, me a Gentile too, all of us, we Gentiles, we have been grafted into Israel. Because remember, what did Paul say? Not everybody who is genetically Israel is Israel, right? Okay? And we have been grafted into the olive tree. We have been grafted in. So the idea is this. If you really want to look at where the action's at, the action's not in the United States, nor is it in Great Britain or any other place. The action is in the visible church because the visible church is the place where there truly should be and is a real covenantal relationship. Now, I believe personally that the United States is going in the toilet because the church has gone in the toilet already, okay? The church itself has rejected God. Within the church, there's flat-out apostasy, okay? And to prove that, I would just point to, well, the ordination of practicing homosexuals, the blessing of gay marriages and mainline denominations, uh, I would point to the word of faith heresy. I would point to uh, preachers like Perry Noble, Stephen Furtick, Joel Osteen. The reality is this, is that the covenant community that matters is the church. And within the visible church, the church is just flat out rank teaching heresy. So if, and, and here's the deal, as the church goes, so goes the nation. How can the church be salt and light to the United States of America when the church itself will not get rid of heretics, allows and protects people who are flat out teaching apostasy and rebellion and idolatry against God? The way I see it, the church is ground zero, not where the Twin Towers were knocked down. That's where we need to focus our attention. And isn't that what Peter was saying in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17? For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Folks, there is a lot of people deeply concerned about where the United States is heading. 
and for good reason. There's many people who believe that God may be judging the United States, and God may be judging the United States. I'm not saying that he's not. I would point to the 55 million babies that have been systematically and clinically murdered in the United States since the passing of Roe v. Wade to say, listen, if there's ever a, if there's ever a candidate country for God's wrath and judgment, it is the United States. 55 million? That makes Hitler look like a schoolboy. Okay? So I have no problem with the concept of the idea that God judges and that we're called to repentance and faith and trust in Christ. The issue is, is that the church has been distracted by the social gospel, by the, uh, by the moral majority, by all this stuff that it's been doing other than preaching Christ and him crucified for our sins. If there's ever, if there's even a chance to save the United States, I don't even know if it's possible. It must begin by the church, people in the church, returning to sound biblical doctrine, to the proclamation of faith and trust in Christ and repentance and the forgiveness of sins, won by Jesus Christ, the one true God in human flesh, who bore our sins on the cross. We've got to get back to that and preaching that because that is the only message that has the power to bring somebody from death being spiritually dead to being alive and in Christ and bearing fruit in keeping with that repentance. Just preaching the law at a bunch of pagans and telling them, hey, you guys need to clean up your act, doesn't have the power to convert them. Okay? And remember, what does Hebrews eleven six say? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So, where does the repenting need to take place? The repenting needs to take place in the church. That means the church needs to rebuke and put out and excommunicate those who are teaching false doctrine, false prophets, heretics, all of these need to not no longer put up with this nonsense and get these people out and put in their place people who will preach the biblical gospel and rightly handle God's word and teach sound doctrine. Okay? That's the idea. So to sum it all up, Here's the basic idea, okay? I don't think Jonathan Kahn is an evil dude, okay? I've talked with him. I believe he's a brother in Christ. I don't believe his book is very helpful, and I believe that he selectively told the the Isaiah 9 passage in such a way to make it line up with these things that he thought were more than coincidences, okay? I don't, I'm not convinced that they're truly harbingers, and I, I base that on the fact that I don't think the premise is correct. I don't believe for a second that the United States is a covenant community. And I don't see that as a pattern because the first piece of the pattern is missing in the, in the puzzle when it comes to applying to the United States. That being said, you know, you got to give him props for the fact that he clearly preaches the biblical gospel at the end of the book. He does. It's right there. Now, I, I, I'll have to quibble with him regarding the fact that, you know, he uses language that sounds Pelagian, and, you know, but we'll have to save that conversation for another time. But you get what I'm saying. Okay? So, I mean, here's the deal. How do I look at this book? You know what I think it is? I think the Harbinger has become 
this generation's uh, equivalent to uh, Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth. And uh, do I think people 10, 15 years from now are going to be reading The Harbinger? Not for a second. You'll be able to buy it for a penny at a used bookstore. That's what's going to end up happening with this book. It's <laughs> The reason why is because it's I don't think it's accurate or correct. Okay, But he does preach the biblical gospel in it. That's the part that I absolutely think is accurate and correct. So tomorrow, by the way, I, I have communicated with, I had a conversation with uh, Jonathan Kahn today, and I've invited him to, uh, you know, to have a conversation with me on the phone and offer him an opportunity to, uh, you know, provide a rebuttal or, or interact with what I've said on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I have every reason to believe he's going to follow through with that, and so we are, we are scheduled tomorrow to record that uh, before we air at six in the uh, in the evening Eastern time. So, what'd you think? Uh, what do you think of the book, The Harbinger? What do you think of what the author has said? Um, this is you know this is your opportunity to practice discernment. You know, do what what do you think? I mean, do you think uh, that these are harbingers? Do you think he correctly handled the biblical text? Are we rightly understanding? You know the nature, the the nature of God's relationship to the United States. What do you think? I'd like to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, my email address talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and His vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. 